Welcome to the New Life Podcast. Here we want you to experience the grace of God. So through this sermon, we hope to come alongside you as you grow in your relationship with Jesus. To learn more about New Life, please visit our website at newlifeonline.org. Here's today's message. So what we want to talk about, we're going to tee off a little bit on James 1 because that's about endurance. Because those trials come into our life, we're to consider it joy because they produce endurance. Um... So we talked about that several weeks ago as an endangered character quality. But today we're going to talk about another endangered character quality, courage. But let me ask this, has there ever been a time in your life where someone has challenged you to do something, to get out of your comfort zone, to do something to a higher level, to do something you wouldn't have otherwise thought about doing? Because that's what we're going to talk about here today and have the courage to respond to that. You know, in my own life, it has been about 20 years ago Uh, Bob C. and Dave Troyer came to me and said, Kirk, would you consider taking Tuesday morning out of your law practice and coming and working at the church with us on sermon series and drafting sermons and critiquing sermons and and doing that? And that would have been taking half a day off from my practice. I thought about it and quickly said, sure, I'll do that. Uh, But I would have never done that had they not come to me and challenged me to take a step of faith in that direction. Years ago, a friend of mine named Dave Barry uh, encouraged me to start pursuing a degree uh, in theology. Uh, that was, that was uh, 1995. Uh, and to kind of put it into context, back then when you did online distance learning, there, excuse me, online wasn't even the term in 1995. When you did distance learning, they sent you a box of VHS cassettes. That was your class. Uh, But if it weren't for Dave Barry challenging me to do that, to do something different, step out of my comfort zone, I would have never done that. So today we're going to talk about courage as an endangered character quality. And we're going to use it by studying the book of Esther. God wants us to be courageous Christians. He says this in 2 Timothy 1. He says, God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, no timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. That's God's goal and desire is for Christians to be people of courage. And we need courage today in our lives. Some examples might be, I I think a lot of marriages, even Christian marriages, are often unhappy or at least dissatisfied. It's the same argument that you've had for the 10th time in a row, and nothing seems to get better. But to have the courage to say, stop, we're going to do something different and make this a better marriage. That takes courage to do that. Or health, if you're facing a health situation, even a chronic thing, um, that just doesn't seem to want to go away. And you'll go, gosh, I just wish this would never, never, ever end. And it's like it's my lot. I'm going to have to live with this for the rest of my life. It takes courage in the face of chronic health problems. We need to be Christians of courage. And then in financial areas, many of us look at the end of the month and say, I don't know if there's going to be enough money to go around at the end of the month. We, we can never get ahead. Things break down, there's not enough money, I don't know how we're going to make it. But it takes courage to face those fears and debilitating circumstances. Parenting is another thing. Why is parenting so difficult? I'm sure many of you would say that. Why is parenting so difficult? It takes courage to stand, stay in there, endure, and face obstacles with courage. So there are, it's relevant to us today because we need courage to face fears Fears that come over us, anxiety, like was talked about last week, anxiety that comes. We need to be courageous people 
to face difficult circumstances. So the question might be, how do we get there? How do we become courageous? And what we're going to do today, we're going to look at the example of Esther, right out of the book of Esther, and see an example, a very good example of courage, a character quality that is endangered today. So we're going to look at the book of Esther. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to it. Otherwise, there'll be some of the passages on the screen. It's in the Old Testament. If you go to halfway, it's Psalms, and you go a little bit to the left, and there you'll find the book of Esther. And if, you, if, you've, if you've read it or, or if you haven't read it, it is a book that is an exciting book. You read it, it's full of irony, it's full of drama, it's full of suspense, and it's an exciting book to read. When you read that, you think, wow, the Bible is fascinating. <clears throat> so, let me kind of set up the context of the book of Esther. Uh, it takes place after the people of Israel were taken captive to Persia, they were in exile. So they basically are strangers in a foreign land. They are captives in a foreign country. And Xerxes is the king of this Persian empire. Xerxes is the king. And the Persian empire is huge. It goes all the way from India all the way to Europe over this vast, vast uh, empire. Xerxes is the king. He's one of our characters in our study here today. Um, So let me kind of walk through the story of Esther here. uh, And if you, you can follow along. It starts out where Xerxes, this king, is celebrating a military victory of some kind, I guess, and he calls a seven-day feast to celebrate his victory. Now, this feast, then, is not just like a a two-hour feast. It's seven days. It's full of opulence, excess, extravagance to the extreme. And let me read here in chapter 1. It says this. The garden, this is where the feast is held, the garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and pure purple material with two rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. That's what they call, that's what we call open bar. No restrictions. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man whatever he wished. So here's this feast, this big, huge party. It really is the ultimate frat party. Only men are there, and there's unlimited drinking for seven consecutive days. The ultimate frat party of men. In the middle of this party, the king decides, probably with some of the advice of his buddies, that he wants to show off his beautiful wife. She's his show pony, his trophy wife. His name, her name was Vashti. So he calls Vashti and summons her to come in and show herself to all of his men buddies. But she won't have any, any of it, and she refuses to come. The king, he's the king, he's furious. And after consulting his drinking buddies... He decides he's going to fire the queen and take her position away. And he's going to need a new queen. So with the advice of his buddies, he embarks on a year-long beauty contest to replace his wife as queen. We read this in chapter 2. It says this. Then the king's personal attendants proposed. That's His personal attendants are his drinking buddies, okay? (laughs) Then the king's personal attendants proposed. Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm 
to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. So there's his year-long beauty contest. Now, enter Esther and Mordecai. Now, back up a minute. Mordecai was part of the Jewish people that were taken captive and brought into the empire of Persia. They were essentially prisoners of war or slaves or servants. They were captives. And while they were there, Esther was probably born because she was a young lady. And Mordecai was her, either her uncle or her cousin. But because Esther's parents had died early in her life, Mordecai was raising Esther. So he was a father figure, but really an uncle to Esther. So what we know about Esther is she was a Jew. Very important. She was a Jew. She also was gorgeous. And she embarks on a 12-month beauty treatment because Mordecai decides to enter, into, enter her into this beauty contest for the queen. And then you run the clock ahead after a period of a year out of the hundreds of beautiful women that had been collected, Esther wins the beauty contest and she is crowned queen of Persia. It says this in chapter 2 of Esther. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet. He likes his banquets. king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. So Esther now is crowned queen. Things are looking great. But there's a secret. A secret is this. Esther is not Persian. She's Jewish. And the king doesn't know it. Now, if we step back for a minute, what you're going to see in this whole story of Esther is this. Nowhere in the book of Esther is God even mentioned. There was some controversy originally about whether this book should even be in the Bible because nowhere is the name of God mentioned. But as we read it and as you follow it, you will see the invisible hand and fingerprints of God all over this story. It is huge. Now, side story, after Esther's crowned queen, Mordecai is her uncle. And he discovers a plot of a couple fellows to kill the king. So Mordecai tells, gets a message to Esther. Esther tells the king that there's this plot to kill him, and the king quickly deals with it. The plot's thwarted, and these two... Uh, bad guys are killed. Side story. Now, next we find enter Haman. Haman is the villain of the story. He's, Haman is one of the king's right-hand men, uh, and he was a big shot. He thought quite a, well, a lot of himself. He sat with the king at all of his banquets, but he was offended by Mordecai. Haman was offended by Mordecai because Mordecai refused to kneel down and honor Haman whenever Haman would come in and out of the palace. He was so, Mordecai was so enraged that he decided not only to kill, excuse me, Haman was so enraged that he resolved not only to kill Mordecai, but to kill all of Mordecai's people, all of the Jews. It says this in chapter 3, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. 
Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, that's the Jews, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Essentially, this is genocide. This is an effort by Haman to get the king, as we'll see, to wipe out the Jewish race from the face of the earth. And you know, if you step back a little bit and you look at the bigger picture of this, this is not too dissimilar from World War II and what was going on in in, uh, Germany. It's also not too similar to what we see throughout the whole scripture, that it is the goal and desire of Satan to thwart a Messiah coming to save you and I. He will do whatever he can. Haman is used here as an instrument of Satan to try to thwart God's plan of salvation by wiping out the people from whom the Messiah would come. Okay, so this plan of genocide of all the Jews. So to carry out this genocide, Haman lies to the king, tells him what bad people the Jewish people are, and he bribes the king with millions of dollars to issue a decree that the Jewish people were to be exterminated. And then he even set a date. It says this in chapter 3. It says, Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate. I mean, they couldn't just say kill. They have to say destroy, kill, and annihilate. That's like complete extermination. Of all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So this is the decree that the king issues to exterminate, obliterate all the Jews. Then interestingly enough, it says this at the end of chapter 3, it says, then the king and Haman sat down to drink. That's what the king does a lot of. So we see this is ethnic cleansing of epic proportions. The entire Jewish race was at stake. Terrible predicament that the Jews find themselves here at the end of chapter 3 of the book of Esther. These are the people of God. If you remember, this is God appeared to Moses or to Abraham and and led him to believe that he was the promised man and out of him descendants would come and out of him the Messiah would come. That same promise was given to Abraham, to Moses, to Isaac, to David. The Jewish people were to be the people out of whom the Messiah would come to liberate and save the people. And yet here they are at this particular time in history, they're captives in a foreign land. And now, to make things worse, there's a decree that the entire Jewish race would be exterminated. Killed, destroyed, and annihilated is what it says. So Mordecai learns, he's he's around the temple gates, and he learns about this decree to wipe out the Jewish race including him. He goes into great mourning and grief, and Esther sees that from her palace and sends a message to Mordecai and says, what's wrong anyway? What's wrong? Mordecai then sends word back to Esther, where she's in the palace as queen, about the decree to annihilate the Jews. And then he requests, Mordecai requests, that Esther go into the king's presence, beg for mercy, and plead with the king For the Jewish people. That is a huge, huge request. For a couple reasons. First of all, if Esther did that, she would identify with the Jews. She would expose herself as a Jew. And that is a big risk. Secondly is this. She'd be risking her life 
because of the protocol, and she could end up like the last queen, banished or even killed. So Esther, after being given this challenge by Mordecai to go to the king, she gives an excuse. She's a little timid. She gives an excuse. Here's what she says in chapter 4. All the king's officials and people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their life. So after Mordecai makes this request, Esther has a little problem of being timid, and she gives an excuse why she can't do this. But Mordecai doesn't leave it alone. Mordecai then steps up, and he challenges her. Here's what Mordecai says in chapter 4. It says, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you, Esther, remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And Esther, who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther, hearing that, responds to the challenge with courage. Here's what she says. says, And Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So here's a lady of courage. She puts her own life at risk for the sake of God's people. So Esther then embarks on a plan. Now, this lady, Esther, she's beautiful. Uh, She's courageous, as we've seen. But she's also very shrewd because she just doesn't barge into the king's chambers and say, You've got to stop this decree about killing all the Jews. She doesn't do that. She shrewdly sets up a plan to get that done. So she puts on her queenly, royal queenly attire, gets herself duded up, spruced up, and she makes herself visible to the king. We read this in chapter 5. When he, that's the king, saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she's just standing around, he was pleased with her. And he held out the gold scepter that was in his hand. That's the key moment in this drama. He held, out, he held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. So here's a miracle. She was accepted by the king. She wouldn't die after all. And then her request that she gives right away. She doesn't ask right away that the, the de- decree be reversed. She, her request is, I want to have another banquet. So please set another banquet and invite Haman to this banquet, okay? So before we get to the next banquet, there's an interlude here at the beginning of chapter 6. And it says, one night, the king, Xerxes, he can't sleep. Coincidence? He can't sleep. And in his sleeplessness, he decides to look over the chronicles of what's been going on in the country for the past couple years, and he discovers that some time ago there was a plot to kill him, and this guy named Mordecai, that we already heard, Mordecai thwarted the plot. 
So he says, what, what can I do to reward this Mordecai? He's never been rewarded before for saving my life. What can I do? Mordecai is then honored into the humiliation of Haman, the bad guy, the villain. So here again, this king can't sleep at night, the invisible hand of God orchestrating events and people as God sees fit. Now, so back to our story. Queen Esther has a banquet. And this time, the king says the same thing. What's your request, Esther? Are you even up to half the kingdom if it will be yours? And here it says this. It says, Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. So three things here. The plot of Haman is exposed to the king. Esther identifies herself as a Jew and identifies herself as, with the people of God. And Haman is exposed as the culprit who set this up, who bribed the king to make this decree. So the rest of the story, read it if you can, if you have opportunity. Haman is exposed. He's then is hanged. He's hanged, ironically, on the very gallows that he had had built to kill Mordecai. And then the king, through a kingly decree, saves the Jewish people. The Jewish people are spared. Mordecai then is elevated in the king's court after Haman is gone. So there's a story, and I've got three separate takeaways from the story of Esther. By the way, it's unusual. Several weeks ago, we studied James chapter, four, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, four verses. Today, we cover the entire book of Esther. Three takeaways. <clears throat> First, each person has a unique place in God's design for this world. God has put each of us in a particular place at a particular time for a particular reason. Don't think that you aren't special somewhere to somebody. God has orchestrated your life to put you in a place at a particular time. Just like Esther. Mordecai re reminds Esther of this. <clears throat> he says, who knows, Esther, but that you have been placed in this royal position for such a time as this. God orchestrates people. He orchestrates our lives for particular purposes. He puts us in places, in relationships, for a particular purpose. He does that just in our story here. He orchestrates people. Esther, a Jew, beating the odds of this beauty contest to become queen. Mordecai, discovering the plot. The king, being unable to sleep one night and, and discovering that Mordecai needed to be rewarded. Or the king, against all odds, extends his scepter to Esther and she responds and her life is saved and she gets to make her re -re request to the king. These are the fingerprints and hand of God that orchestrates the events of people's lives and history. And that same God is in control today, even when it seems that he's not. It may seem that God is, the world is out of control, but God is still in control and continues to orchestrate people and events. And he has put each one of us in a particular place for, at a particular time for a purpose. You know, each of us have unique 
abilities, talents, opportunities that no one else has. The person next to you doesn't have the same opportunities. Many of you are parents. You're the only dad that your children have, the only mom, the only grandma, the only grandpa. You are uniquely positioned to have an influence on those children because of who you are. At our workplace, I don't go to your workplace. You're there. You don't come to my workplace. I'm there. We are uniquely positioned, and God looks to us with a, for a particular purpose. Some of you have gifts and talents that others don't have. They are to be used for God because God gave those to you. Other people have opportunities that some people don't have due to your placement in the neighborhood or education or career or workplace, whatever it is. You are uniquely placed by God for a purpose. The question is this. Are you using your time, your gifts, your talents, your opportunities for God's purposes? That's the question. Second takeaway is this. We need courageous Christians today now more than ever. It takes courage. Christian, being, to be a Christian is not for the weak-hearted or the timid. It takes courage to live out God's plan for your life. Courage is an essential character quality. It's hopefully not too endangered. You know, Esther, when challenged, when challenged by Mordecai, agrees to go to the king. And she says, if I perish... I perish. That's courage. That's like, that's like Rosa Parks telling the bus driver or the authorities, I will not go to the back of the bus. Hebrews 10.39 says this, But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. See, we need Christians today who will stand up for what is right and obey God, even at risk even at a personal cost. It may cost something to do the right thing, but the right thing needs to be done anyway. You know, it takes courage to become a Christian. In today's society, for a young person or any person to decide that they want to accept Christ and follow Him, there's a cost involved. It takes courage to become a Christian. But it also takes courage to lead the Christian life in the face of a culture and society that is continuing to propagate values that are contrary to God's values and practices that are contrary to God's plan, it takes courage to lead a Christian life. Especially in a culture and a society that not only is contrary to God, but is oppositional, oppositional to the cause of Christians. It takes courage in relationships. You know, to be sexually pure outside of marriage and within marriage, it's not easy anymore. It takes courage to stand for what's right. To live a godly marriage takes courage. It may be, it takes courage to say, you know, our marriage isn't where it needs to be. Let's do something about that. It takes courage to raise godly children and guide them in the way of the Lord. Parenting is difficult. Our society and culture is difficult. The environment of schools is difficult. We need godly children, and it takes a courageous person to raise children. And then it takes courage to open up your life to significant relationships that will challenge you and hold you to accountable. That requires being vulnerable. That's not easy. But it takes courage to be in relationships that will better you in the long run. And just like Esther, it takes courage to identify as a follower of the true God. In our case, to identify, identify as a follower of Jesus. That takes courage. In your neighborhood, 
at the workplace, for kids in school, at college. Esther did it when she revealed, despite the great risk to her life, she says, I'm a Jew. The Xerxes did not know she was a Jew. She, real, she exposed herself as a follower of the true God. That takes courage. It takes courage for us to identify as a follower of Christ today. So let the example and model of Esther be an inspiration to us. The third point is this. Synergy occurs. That's a good word, by the way, synergy. Synergy occurs between individual Christians within the community of faith when they work together toward a common goal, accomplishing more than the sum of the parts. So we need to create in our churches, in our fellowship groups, we need to create and develop strong relationships with other believers. God does not intend for us to work out our Christian life alone. If you look at the dynamics, the dynamics of Esther and Mordecai, they worked in tandem. Would either been able to accomplish this without the other? Would Esther have had the courage to stand strong to the king and plead for her, for her people without Mordecai? Would, could Mordecai have done this without Esther? The answer to both of those is no. But the two of them in tandem, Mordecai challenging, Esther responding with courage, that's what accomplished this. We need each other. So the challenge for us is get into a community of believers. Get into a discipleship group. Get into a small group. Get involved in men's ministry or women's ministry. Get involved with other Christians who will challenge you and be challenged by you. You know, there's, there, there, there's a progression here. Esther's timid. I can't do this because I'm going to risk my life. Mordecai challenges. Esther responds. That's the way it should work with Christians. We, we all need to have what I've called an Esther moment or a Mordecai moment. We need Christians to be involved in the lives of others, challenging them like Mordecai challenged Esther. We need more people willing to step out and challenge people to step up, do something bigger, grander, stand stronger. But we also need Esthers who, when challenged, won't just say, I can't do it, that will respond to the challenge and go to the next level. We need Esthers and we need Mordecais to build each other up. That's why I use the example of Bob and Dave challenging me to be part of the preaching team. You know, about two years ago, Daniel Cushman, Chad DeWeese, and myself challenged a group of young men to commit to a one-year intensive discipleship program. And it's intensive. You've got to memorize a lot of Bible verses. That's not easy. And we, we challenged guys, went one-on-one -on -one and challenged them. They responded. We had about eight guys. We've been through two rounds of this because we, we put out the challenge. They responded to the challenge. Many of you know Ken Ryder, member at New Life here. Uh, Ken served for years on the mission field in South America. Uh, I learned just this past week, here's what happened. Ken was an accountant working with Han um, Heinold Banwart accounting firm in East Peoria. He's a very successful accountant. And Marshall Heinold, the head guy at the accounting firm, decided that Marshall and his wife were going to retire early and go into the mission field. Then Marshall Heinold comes to Ken and challenges Ken to retire early and go to the mission field. Ken and Joanne responded to the challenge. And we know the years that they spent in 
Brazil. All because a guy like Marshall Heinold challenged Ken and because a guy like Ken answered the bell. So where do you need to step into someone's life and challenge them to be a Mordecai, challenge them to a higher level of their commitment to Christ? Or where do you need to be like Esther? You've been challenged and you want to shrink back. You want to be timid, but you, want to step in, you need to step in and be courageous to take a risk, a financial risk, a relational risk, and get off the bench, get in the game, get off the sidelines and get in the game. And the end result is to live and enjoy a life with God at a higher level. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for Esther. We thank you for Mordecai. We thank you for your invisible hand, God, working throughout history and what you did back then. But we also know that same God, you still are around today, and you still orchestrate events. You still control people's lives, and you still have each one of us in this auditorium in a particular place for this time and for a purpose. May we, like Ken Ryder did, like Esther did, may we answer the bell. May we say, I will step up. I will take the challenge and step up, whatever that may mean. We ask this in Jesus' name.